Hello everyone, this is Santiago Brandt and I am the Clinical Director of MindLab Neuroplasticity Services, Vice President of SciTech Bioscience, and you're listening to the Neuro Neural Network Podcast. Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssen and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for over 50 years and are happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssons.com, that's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com, that's DrSkipHRIN.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out on neurofeedback. The more that hear about us, the more we'll, we can help. My name is Pete, and today we're going to chat with Diego Brand. Jay Gunkelman, uh, QEEG extraordinaire, was on the show a few episodes back, and he suggested that we bring Santiago Brand on the show. Santiago, thanks for joining us all the way from Singapore, right? That is correct. All the way from Singapore. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Thank you for coming on. It's, what, 13 hours difference? So it's, what, 9 o'clock over there? That's right. So, Santiago, how do you know Jay Gunkelman? Well, I met Jay, I would say, about 10 years ago at a restaurant in Sausalito, California, just on the other side of San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge. And at the time, I, I, I was um, somewhat new to the field, and I was um, friends with Cynthia Kerson. I was very interested in teaching neurofeedback to others, and I, I met with Cynthia so we had the idea of producing a workshop in Spanish, and she actually brought Jay along for the for the launch meeting. And that's when I first Jay for the for the first time. I met him for the first time, and you know after that the relationship evolved in that I was more involved uh, at one time being part of the faculty for Brain Science International, and getting the chance to speak more with Jay during the meetings and uh, some workshops. And I think of Jay more than a mentor. I think of him as a sensei. And I, I like to call him my sensei. Uh, you know, if you think of that relationship in the karate kid between Mr. Miyagi and, and, and Daniel LaRusso, where, you know, he learns about karate and he learns about life. Uh, that's how I feel about Jay. I, I've, I've learned a ton about the EEG with him, but I have also learned some really valuable uh, life lessons from him and you know he's he's one of the friends i love the most i'm very honored to 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 know him and work with him next time we uh bring jay on the show we're going to call him mr miyagi <laughs> santiago how'd you get started in neurofeedback biofeedback etc well i was doing my graduate studies in sports psychology i'm a clinical sports psychologist and as part of the curriculum for sports psychology what a biofeedback and neurofeedback class and at the time, I remember thinking I was some, looking for something different to, to do with the athletes, something that would show more concrete and objective results when it came to brain training and enhancing performance. And it was by happenstance that we, it, it, you know, it coincided that we had that class. And to me, it was love at first sight. And right there and then, this was back in 2002, 2003, I knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I was at the time working with the Olympic Committee in Colombia. Uh, I quit my job. I flew to the United States. I did my first training in 2008 uh, with, with Stens Corporation in Florida. Uh, I met uh, a lady by the name of Dr. Susan Crum, who has a clinic there. I worked with her for two years. Then I quit, uh, came back to Colombia, started my own company, and I've been doing that ever since. So it's been 13 years now. Yeah. Where, where are you at now? Well, I am in Singapore. I just got here two months ago. My wife has a job here. And I am going to okay. partner up with a, with, my, with a colleague of mine. Her name is Silvia Weatherill. She's from Portugal. And we're going to start a company called uh, MindLab Neuroplasticity Services. So we're going to do neurofeedback, QEG brain mapping, neurostimulation for uh, corporate type clients, peak performance, and the like. So we're really excited about that. Oh, nice. Outstanding. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Max, before we get to everything else, we, we, we have a listener question here I'd like to knock out of the way, and then we can get going with our conversation with Santiago. Uh, do you find neurotherapy works or neurofeedback therapy works for individuals 
with a bipolar disorder helpful mix any feedback or any help would be appreciated well i think that it might potentially be helpful uh, but i don't think that bipolar is one of those conditions that you can target when you're a feedback alone um, i'm always a big proponent of uh, holistic and integrative interventions and in fact in my line of work even if it is not directly when i do neurofeedback or biofeedback i always like to combine it with interventions like nutritional assessments and functional medicine and exercise so you know for the listener if they're concerned about their their bipolar condition i would say try neurofeedback i think can be potentially helpful but you also need to take the pharmacological approach you need your medication you need uh, good psychotherapy for it you need good psychiatric care uh, you definitely need to exercise you need to exploit your dietary uh, patterns and habits and involving some some sort of medicine practitioner like functional medicine or somebody with an advanced degree would be quite helpful dr lord dr skip anything uh, with the efficacy of bipolar disorder and neurofeedback i'm going to defer to laura um, okay, and I was going to defer to Skip. Not uh, actually, I'm going to defer to Len Koziel. Um, I loved his comments about Len Koziel. By the way, uh, Santiago is uh, our, I mean, uh, uh, our mentor, our sensei. Yeah, from a few years ago, we studied neuropsych together uh, under uh, Dr. Koziel. But um, he always had this great question every time we started talking about bipolar disorder. And his question always was to think about the last bipolar client that you had. And did they truly fit the classic bipolar? Like how many bipolar people, you know, people diagnosed with bipolar do we see in a true classic DSM sense? And um, so when I think about that, I think of, okay, the di diagnostic manual that we follow for insurance purposes, I guess, talks about, you know, these significant episodes of depression. And I, I think we see many classic depressed people in our practices, you know, helpless, hopeless, feeling that can't go on and they, they have no efficacy sense, um, you know, the, the low mood, we see that pretty frequently. But the question Len always asks is, do you see the, the classic manic symptoms? Do you see people frequently who are, you know, out oh, way overspending, buying, you know, sailboats when they can't afford it, or are they, you know, true bipolar? And so I'm going to ask both Skip and Santiago, what Len always asks, do you guys see this classic manic patient in your office? And how frequently do you see them? I'll jump in Santiago, yeah. if you don't mind. Um, I, we do occasionally, given, uh, just to contextualize, given our referral sources, one of our, our bigger referral sources is a community-based mental health clinic. And so they get to see all kinds of folks at various varying levels of functioning. And so, like you're saying, the traditional bipolar, when it gets into the manic state, that's pretty disruptive behaviors. And, and you know, I, I, I joke, but it's not a joke. When folks are in a manic episode, it usually ends in one of two ways. They get arrested or they go to the hospital. Like you're doing things in your life that just don't work and somebody's going to call the cops. You know, it, it usually ends up that way. And so when we do see folks in our office that are, you know, true air quotes, right? Shout out to Tony that they, they're, they're being medicated, but they do have the symptoms and they have the history. Um, when I was in private practice doing clinical work, hardly ever. Right. And for other reasons, right. And not, right. not to, you know, pejoratize anybody, but usually folks that are going through bipolar aren't in a position to go meet their therapist once a week and talk about it. Right. So since we're doing more assessment and evaluation these days, we do see more. Yeah. Do, do you see a lot of that Santiago bipolar disorder? Not really. I was just going to say the same as Skip, you know, hardly ever, if ever, you know, yeah. um, not even when, when we look at EEGs with, with, with Jay, that it would meet the classical definition, as you said yeah. before. Yeah. And, and the point of his question, point of Len's question, if, if I get it, is that bipolar is such a DSM specific diagnosis. It is difficult to define in terms of neuroanatomy. What I see it, you know, Parents will come in and say, I, I think my kid has bipolar. He's have, having these meltdowns. And so, again, what Len's point, I think, was is that 
the meltdowns that children are experiencing, you know, is that classic bipolar or is it a cerebellum dysregulation? They can't regulate, you know, they're overexpressing, overshooting, you know, this dysmetria of their you know, dysmetric emotion. So that their cerebellum is dysfunctioning. And so, you know, the DSM doesn't really spell out, you know, doesn't really map the neuroanatomy. And so that was kind of his point is like, okay, what is, what is bipolar anyway? Is it, you know, this kid who's having a cerebellum dysfunction, possibly, he was kind of saying that there are two different things that then I then I'll see some patients who, you know, will come in and say, well, I, I think I have bipolar, because my moods um, are all, you know, all over the place, you know, that I, you know, one minute, I'm fine, and a happy go lucky next minute, I'm you know, bouncing off the walls. And so that bouncing off the walls, you know, what exactly is that in terms of neuroanatomy or in terms of neuropsychology? You know, is it, um, you know, behavior dysregulation from the cerebellum standpoint again, or is it the, the behavior gating systems involving the basal ganglia? You know, is it that kind of stuff? Is it frontal stuff that, you know, they can't, there's, there's no braking system. And so, you know, it's really kind of hard to pinpoint what the DSM is going after because it could be anything, you know, any, anything neuroatomically, anatomically. And I think that was Len's point is like, you know, what it, what is bipolar anyway? Amygdala, you know, issues, is it front, you know, and it's hard to define and therefore, you know, again, quote, what is it? And how many people do we truly see in the classic sense and substance abuse, you know, lack of sleep. I mean, there's so many things. And um, so to the, to the person's, you know, question, you know, what exactly, you know, we need more of an assessment to understand the individual. I don't know if we can do a one size fits all yes or no, you know, what we're doing can affect bipolar. You know, that that's one thought that I'm having. And the second thought I'm having is, you know, kind of back to, you know, a lot of our discussions we've had here that we're not, you know, with neurofeedback, and you can give us your opinion, Santiago, uh, in a sec, with, with neurofeedback, are we treating diagnoses or are we treating brain dysregulation? Are we trying to adjust rhythm? And does the brain rhythm, you know, have a flag on it that says bipolar? So, so we're, we always kind of twist the question back to the patient and or whatever, just twist the response and say, we're, we're going to try to get your brain healthier, put it in a better state, and then you'll be able to manage life better. You know, when your brain's health, kind of like you said, Santiago, get, you know, get exercise and body health and brain health. And then, you know, all of your symptoms of whatever type are, are going to improve. I'm going to throw all of that back on you, Santiago. How often do you kind of mix the DSM and discussions of neurofeedback or kind of what's, what's your I don't know, kind of response to all, all this stuff I'm bringing up? Well, yeah, my approach is somewhat similar to yours. In, in every time I get the chance to go and, and, and deliver a workshop, the first thing I say is what's in the name. And the way I approach the diagnosis, quote unquote, is I talk about patterns. I, I think we give names to things just because the client needs a name to something to make sense of it. But in reality, I'm very much against labeling or giving specific diagnosis, specific words to talk about something. So what, what instead what I do is I talk to the client and I say, your brain wave patterns, the way your brain is behaving right now, what your brain is doing right now, it's that it's causing you to have a pattern or a tendency to gravitate towards a certain behavior or a certain thinking pattern that is not too healthy for you. Now, with neurofeedback, what we're gonna do is we're gonna optimize your brain functioning so that we can take you in a different direction, which is more adaptive, it's healthier for you in your interactions with the environment and, and, and everything else, right? So I tell, always tell the clients, I'm not going to give you specific work. I'm not going to say you're depressed. I'm not going to say you're anxious. I'm not going to say you're bipolar. What I'm going to tell you is that you have a pattern. We can train that pattern and we can make it better for you. So, you know, as, as, as I, I think the same approach as Jay takes is talking about the neuronal substrates or whatever the person is presenting with and staying away from specific labels because I really don't like that. And I think it, it serves the client better. To me, giving the client a diagnosis is like giving an actor a character. They're going to own it. 
and they're going to be in character. You know, it's like you have a method actor. They're going to be in character all the time. So if you tell them you're depressed or you're depressive or you're anxious, they're going to own it and they're going to act like it because that's what's expected of them. If you tell them this can be optimized, this can be changed, this can be made better, I think it provides a client with more flexibility to have enough motivation for us to do our work more properly. That, that's, that's how I approach it generally. Santiago, on that note, just out of curiosity, we often discuss, or at least you know, it comes around, so we, we comment on the impact and effects of the DSM. Our you know, framework of that is practicing in the United States, right? So just you know, on that note, it, can you comment on the influence of the DSM outside of the United States? What's it like in South America? What's it like in Singapore? Is it as, is it as heavy handed and prevalent as it is here? Well, I've only been in Singapore for two months, so I cannot really answer the question for here, but I'm going to say in South America, it weights heavily as well. It's, it's probably the equivalent to, to the Bible to, for, for psychologists. You know, it's the book you go to for answers or references. Um, I think that slowly but steadily EEG work and the, the endophenotype model is being gaining some momentum. It's, it's a long way still. Uh, but I see more and more people staying away from just using the DSM and embracing other forms of intervention and assessment as well. However, I mean, it's still used very widely. And I, and I had a comment. Folks that have been listening for a while know about this. You don't yet, Santiago, but Pete's not a psychologist. And so he's always marveling at our answers and how they don't take three seconds. And so, <laughs> right, the, the, the listener question is, hey, does this stuff work for bipolar and we have to stop and say, hey, what do you mean by bipolar? And well, what does that look like? And so every question has 20 questions. And so anyway, Pete, at least there's some uh, rationale behind it. It's not just yeah, me and Laura. Shorter answer is a combination of what Santiago and, and Mean Skip said that you need further assessment. Make sure you have the right diagnosis for sure. And yeah, medications are probably are your best help to keep you out of jail, you know, kind of stuff. But if there's brain dysregulation or there's a pattern that's not healthy, the neurofeedback can be a supplement to what you're already getting. Is that fair? I think it's fair. And I think also it's worth repeating that within the world of neurofeedback, it's not DSM driven. And certainly we recognize what that is and, and generally what folks are referring to when they mention a diagnosis out of it. But it's more about all right. Let's let's go from symptoms, right? Let, let's what are we talking about? What do you experience? And so, there you go, right? When you're working in neurofeedback, as Santiago just explained, it's more about let's let's look at brainwave frequencies and and are they working in coherence and and are things as they should be or is something out of timing, right? It, it's just a different, really different perspective to start from. There's that too, right? It's it, it's a different look. Well, Docs, we're in an on-demand world, unfortunately. You know, the, the people are coming in. They only know one way to communicate with you. Yep. Uh, the EEG, that's another way that the client can communicate with you, tell you what's going on. If you're depressed, you have dysregulation in the front left. If you're anxious, it's the front right. What's going on, whatever the definition of bipolar is, what do you think you would see on the EEG? I know you're going to say it's a combination of these things, but what's going to make you see something in a scan that says, huh, we got something to take a look at here. This could be a bipolar situation or you don't. Could be anything, you know, <laughs> that, that's my whatever answer, but I'll, I'll yeah. try. Uh, frontal lobe, you're going to have uh, orbital frontal cortex, uh, tr you know, trouble regulating your speech, trouble regulating your, your behavior. And that's going to be a, a frontal uh, issue. So not just regulating and controlling, but also what we were talking about uh, probably last episode about motivation and drive. So your drive is definitely in, in the, the central frontal lobe. And so you're going to see possibly some issues there. And again, I'd want to see what the patient's map looks like. And then that's going to help us. You know, So for, if I'm wrong about that, theory, that supposition that, yeah, it's probably frontal lobe because that, that's where uh, mood and drive uh, are looped into. Or is it what I was saying earlier about, you know, could it be a cerebellum issue, you know, looking to, look into the back there. 
um, or is it amygdala issue? Look into the um, temporal lobes in the deeper uh, subcortical level. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd start in the front and that's my guess, but I'd, I'd be curious with my guess versus what the map says that that'll help a little bit with the diagnosis and then help point the, the, um, the training, like lead, lead the tr- treatment plan, knowing what the map says. What about ACC? Um, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. ACC. Yeah. So the, the, the more, more frontal than not, right. Of course, but okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I would say yeah, orbital frontal is all kind of wrapped into the uh, anterior cingulate. And yeah, so it's gating your attention and gating your behavior and gating your thinking. And it's drive and push and, and stamina. And, um, you know, there's uh, so uh, Dr. Tony talked about the drunken bull and the raging bull. So yeah. it's going to be the raging bull uh, profile. Um where so the opposite of mania is what depression, right? Kind of under functioning, you know, it's gonna be dysregulation someplace in the front. What do you think, Santiago? I would probably say, you know, if I if I remember correctly, I I think Jay at one point showed us a, an EEG of a bipolar client. I think there was heavy beta spindling involved. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Again, exercising caution because beta spindling is non-specific, but. I would not be surprised if the right insula was to be involved somehow as well, you know, with explosiveness and the sudden abrupt mood swings. And again, you know, if, if I think the client wants it to be called bipolar or depressive or something so they can make sense of it, I try to stay away from labels as much as possible. And I just, again, go to, this is a brainwave pattern. It causes you to react this way. That's it. Coins that would would have you with with what you've been experiencing, and they go either yes or no, you know. And and if we're reading things correctly, they're going to go, yeah, that that's me. That defines me. If the if the client happens to be there with a significant other, well, the 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 significant other can also confirm on, on what we are assessing based on that brainwave pattern. But I would go with what Laura is saying: the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, the limbic system. And probably the right insula, which is more of a presentation that would fit the, the classical behavioral patterns that, that you normally study in the bipolar. We'll put that one to rest. We, we gave the listener about half of our show. We love our listeners here at NeuroNoodle. Santiago, you, you share a passion that, that I have, concussions. Uh, now that uh, we're getting out of COVID and we're getting our vaccinations, or hopefully we are, Kids are getting more active out there. Don't you think if a kid is going to play sports and they get a, a physical, shouldn't they get a mental physical by getting an EEG to get a, a baseline in case something happens during the season? What's your thoughts on that, Santiago? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. You know, every client that I see, regardless of what they work with me for, you know, it's something clinical or it's peak performance related, I always go with an EEG. And as a matter of fact, I think every human being on this planet, one way or the other, whether they want to work in something or not, they would benefit from getting an EEG. You know, to, to me, EEG and QEG are very powerful, undermined, underutilized tools, you know, and we can obtain so much information and it can come handy at any time. And like you say, you know, if, if an athlete were to get COVID, if they, if they were to get a concussion, if it's something happens to them that's altering their behavior, we have that baseline to go with. And if we reassess, we have a comparison point. Uh, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to be able to see, uh, unfortunately lucky to see some pre, pre-COVID EEGs, post-COVID EEGs. And it's good because it helps us provide tangible evidence of the effects on, uh, of the virus on the brain. The same applies to any athlete from any age, uh, because there's a, there's a gazillion things that could happen during the season. Injuries, TBIs, concussions, sleep issues, I mean, you name it. So I think, I think the EEG is a must. What do you think the future of sports looks like? Because right now, look, I'm not the professional here, but it seems to me that the concussion protocols that are being used right now, they seem a bit antiquated, or maybe they're not. Can you correct me? What do you think the future looks like to determine if a a kid or a player should get on the field? When would the EEG come into play with that? I would hope that 
doctors and fans and coaches and athletes embrace what we can do with neuroscience and, and the amazing tools we have at hand. Um, you know, just, just to be very specific, look at how long it took the NFL to finally admit on, C, admit on CT, you know, and, and how they try to hide it for so long and all the havoc get wreaked on so many people. Um, obviously, CT is not something that you can pick up. As far as I understand, you can only pick it up with an autopsy. It's not something that MRI or EEG will pick up. But as the technology gets better, I would hope that standard practice, not only for elite sports, amateur sports, or any type of sporting event, or for any type of athlete, to get assessed with these technological options. And that way, we can not only have better assessments, but we can come up with better ways of intervening, not only to enhance performance. You know, we're talking about people here, and if there's anything I've learned about elite sports is that they're not healthy. You know, they're anything but, you know, elite athletes, um, we think of them as very healthy people, but the practice of elite sports or any kind of elite performance, musicians and actors and you name it, it's not really healthy. You know, it, it, it's a very hazardous occupation. So to me, doing an EEG, doing an MRI, doing more advanced QEG should be standard practice. It should be as mandatory as getting vaccinated for smallpox or as mandatory as getting vaccinated for, you know, for any other kind of condition. It, it should not be a discussion of whether it needs to be done. It, it should be done. Comment and then a quick question for Santiago, but the, the military has, you know, some access to devices, certainly the development of them for kind of battlefield TBI analysis. So it's out there, Pete. And it's, and it's not just, you know, the sideline doc saying, Hey, what's your name? And what, what week is it? What day is it? So that it's out there how, and when that translates into the sideline of, of a high school football or soccer game, you know what I mean? Hard, hard to say, but there are some things that, that are getting more into how we look at brain function and that's, you know, EEG. And so as everything shrinks and becomes more accessible, I think it's probably coming. But I, I, the question I had for you, Santiago, is we are, you know, focused on neurofeedback and neuropsych, but we tend to see folks that aren't doing so well. And I know that you work with elite athletes and, you know, around the idea of peak performance. Can you talk to us and our audience about just how that is a little different, uh, and maybe it's not, uh, with, you know, treating people with dysfunction? Athletes are different in that in many ways they're built different from the average person, the, their central nervous system and their organisms uh, in, in many ways are more sophisticated, you know, but that comes with a challenge too, because the more sophisticated the organism, the more challenges you're going to face. Now, as far as peak performance goes, I find it somewhat easier to work with them in that they're very motivated individuals and they're often very accessible to working with you. You know, if they believe that what you have to offer, it's going to take them to the next level. They're, 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 they're really open to the idea. Um, if, you th- if you tell an athlete, athlete to jump out of a building and go head first, feet first, what do you want me to do? Um, you know, if you tell a clinical client, I want you to jump out of the building, they're going to question you more and you're going to find more resistance and, head is in, and they'll be going to be more hesitant about it. Now, on the other hand, because athletes are so sophisticated, it's also a challenge to work with them sometimes. As far as the patterns go, I don't see the two, the clinical population and the athletes being really dissimilar. I, you know, in my first week in my internship in sports psychology, I had a figure skater who attempted suicide. Um, and, you know, suicide ideation, depression, sleep disturbances are quite common in athletes. Um, I think that the way you handle it is somewhat different. But uh, I, I see some of the same underlying issues. Uh, and, and again, in, in some ways, when you are talking about performance, they're more motivated than the average Joe, uh, but um, they're more challenging in some other aspects. A lot of them, especially in Latin America, are very religious uh, or really superstitious, and that's hard to get around. You know, it's very hard to get around really engraved and um, sustained religious beliefs or superstitions. And I don't think there's any amount of neurofeedback you can do if there's not enough flexibility on behalf of of the athlete. Um, The other issue you have to contend with sometimes the coach, 
you know, a coach wants one thing, the athlete wants a different one. Um, and coaches tend to be really territorial, especially when it comes to sports psychology. Uh, th- th- there's a belief that a psychologist is there to manipulate the athlete and then you're going to gang up against the coach with the athlete. So that can be somewhat of a challenge. And, and I think in elite sports, the first person who should benefit from, from an assessment and intervention is the coach themselves. Um, you know, and there's not a lot of focus. I, I was watching a documentary the other day on the Ingrid, English uh, Premier Football League, soccer in the United States, and they were discussing um, depression among athletes and suicidal ideation, and they find it's quite high. You know, these are elite football soccer players, and the rates of suicide ideation and some, sometimes suicide among coaches and players is really high. And, and there's more expectation from athletes. There's obviously more pressure from them. Uh, so in that way, they're not different from any of us. You know, it's just it's just like a doctor or, you know, or an accountant. They, they feel pressure at their, at their work. Athletes sometimes more because they're in the public eye. So, uh, you know, to me, there's differences. But there's similarities as well. And I think the approach should be the same. It should be holistic. It should be integrative. And, and, and having the tools, it should be mandatory for them to, to go through the process. So what exactly are you targeting and what, what methods do you use? Are you using like full cap training? Are you doing single channel? Are you raising gamma? Kind of what, what, what's your approach? Well, I, I normally do an EEG, a QEG. And I, first of all, see what was not looking right, you know. So, you know, some clients have ADD, ADHD patterns in which they have a lot of theta at the vertex. Uh, something I commonly observe is sleep disturbances among athletes. That's really common. You know, you're in a sharp vertex way with the eyes closed or, you know, not, not, do, not making a lot of alpha in the back of the brain when they close their eyes or maybe jumping into stage two sleep too early. So I do a lot of work for, for sleep disturbances. And I, with the eyes open, I look at what's not right. And again, I haven't seen very dissimilar patterns in that their athletes with, you know, the, the beta pattern at CZ, which is a marker for peak performance, but it's a marker for insomnia. If I see new rhythm, I normally don't touch it because usually an athlete, it means talent. It means the capacity to positively dissociate. Um, and, you know, I, as far as peak performance goes, I use a lot of CZ training SMR. Uh, there's one protocol that I particularly like, which is FP1 with the eyes closed. You know, that's not something that's quite commonly used, but I find that it helps a lot with relaxation. It, it helps a lot with emotional control. I find that I can easily access the amygdala from here, just, just in a different way that you would do from the temporal lobes. And with that protocol, I've seen enhancements in sleep. I've seen enhancements in behavioral inhibition. Uh, so w- w- something the athletes will report is I can control my emotion, my emotions more efficiently. I, I'm not as reactive as I used to be. I'm sleeping so much better. Some percentage of them also report feeling uh, or having the ability to visualize better. So if, if they want to visualize themselves in competition, it, it kind of enhances the, the visual experience of doing that. Interested in how you were phrasing things about the elite athletes um, are, are unique from your average clinical population. So I have all sorts of questions around that. But uh, the first one is about the usefulness of the QEEG. Um, you know, are you comparing apples to apples? You know, if you have an elite athlete, is it correct or is it, you know, misleading to compare your elite brain to an average brain? Like, are, are you seeing more dysregulation that might be false? Not necessarily. I, I, again, what I really see a lot of is the sleep disturbance parents, patterns. So closing their eyes and the alpha is not, it's not occipitally or going into a lot, you know, quite a, a few athletes fall asleep when they do the eyes closed, you know, within the first 30 seconds, they're out and you start seeing they're jumping to stage two or they have a vertex wave and you immediately know something's not right. And it's not that uncommon. I think it has to do with the fact that they're traveling all the time, they're, you know, throughout different time zones and, you know, their circadian rhythms get, get, get out of whack. As far as the eyes open go, uh, the, the one characteristic I notice the most is that they do tend to have a little bit more alpha PC, their peak alpha frequency sometimes tends to be higher. And I think that's a facilitator for their peak performance days. 
they tend to have a more beta rhythmicity over the vertex as well. And a lot of them make more mu than the average person. You know, yeah, talk, talk about that a little bit more. I was interested in how you said that, the, the positively dissociate. Can you explain that a little bit to people who don't quite understand that? Well, the mu rhythm, as it happens in the vertex, usually can be associated with um, a performance enhancement component, but it can also be a performance uh, hindrance. Um, in people who have mu hindrance, usually means that they don't have an ability to sit still. So it, it would correlate with hyperactivity in ADHD. Um, it would correlate with a dysregulation of the mirror neural system, something you would see in people in the spectrum disorder, autistic spectrum, uh, with not being too sociable, not being able to connect emotionally. I've seen it in trauma, for instance, a lot of the trauma clients that I work with present new, and to me, that's a form of dissociation. And dissociation as in, I want to get away from the emotional pain, I want to get away from the psychological pain. However, in athletes, when I meet a, a positive dissociation is the ability to access what we normally call the zone. So these are athletes who, in spite of experiencing, experiencing critical moments during competition, they can isolate themselves and they can flow through the motions. So there's a lot of pressure, the stakes are high, and yet they can perform. So they go, they get into a zone, they go into this bubble where nothing bothers them. And for most athletes, I find that new, it's really performance enhanced. I stay away from the vertex. I stay away from, you know, the, the sensory motor strip and I don't touch it at all because unless I see evidence, behavioral or otherwise, that that's hindering their performance, then I try to address it. So I normally would train, you know, the occipital cortex or maybe CZ, which is, you know, or frontally something to, to not mess with me, not to alter it. Mu rhythm, just again, for the average person, we have potential patients listening and moms and, and maybe other athletes uh, listening. So we're talking about a specific brain rhythm, a specific pattern called the mu rhythm. And it's a high amplitude, high alpha. How, how would you explain it, Santiago? With the mu yeah, rhythm? it's one of the alpha generators and it's in the alpha range. I, I normally see between 10 and 11, 10 and 12 hertz. It can be slower, but normally it's in that rhythm. Right. And and it's so, got a wicked pattern, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you're going to see it kind of over the sensory motor strip. And so in terms of what the brain's doing, it, it's being able to predict what you're going to do before you do it. Is that kind of how you would say the role of the mu rhythm? Um, I would say it, it's more um, a way to isolate yourself from something. Uh, and, and again, in athletes is I can flow in spite of the pressure. So I can get into a bubble and I know there's pressure around. I know that, that you know, the, the spectators are yelling and now my opponents are trying to strike me and then yet nothing gets to me. In somebody who's undergone trauma or PTSD, you know, a, a war veteran it's a way of going into their own inner world so they don't have to experience the agony of the flashbacks or, or the physical pain they might they might have residuals from that trauma so With the disconnection of your right. limbic system from what you're doing or from the environment yeah it's a way of disconnecting getting out of your own way if you if you will uh, I, I, and I think it favors that process you know in trauma you want to break that cycle because you don't want to go into dissociation all the time otherwise it prevents you from being effective but if as a peak performer you have new and you have the capability to tap into that it's going to be quite beneficial because no matter what's happening you know you you can go through it athletes report that it feels like a dream you know and they report like they're in a movie and they're sitting in the stands and the screen is it's playing what's happening in front of them and yet they go through the motions without feeling you know any pain or any agony or any anxiety so either ways it is a distraction sometimes it's a distraction that hinders your health in other ways it's a it's a way of getting out of your own way of your own skin kind of an out-of-body experience that enhances your ability to do things well and i have not only seen it in athletes i've seen it in police officers elite police officers fighter pilots surgeons you know people who really have to focus on dangerous tasks for long periods of time. And when they tap into the new, they just, they just have the sensation of 
flow state where everything's going their way. And I, I find it quite fascinating. And, and so it sounds like uh, you're, uh, you do a lot of single channel uh, training. You, you don't necessarily do cap training. Uh, no, I never done cap training. I usually do bipolar montages to, to electrodes, you know, one active reference, the other one references. It's what's worked for me before. You know, I've experimented with, with three, four channels somewhat, but uh, I usually stay with what in my experience has worked for me. I know there's a lot of people who do Z-score training full cap. Uh, you know, I've never tried it. Yeah. And, and again, we're far down the rabbit hole, especially for, you know, <laughs> I, I can hear Pete thinking right now. But, um, you know, again, we're talking statistics when you're doing Z-scores and we're even talking statistics when you're doing the Q. So, again, you're comparing people who are very elite who might be normal for, for them, but abnormal for the, you know, average person. And so, right. you know, I always feel like I'm comparing apples to oranges when I do too much Z-score Z training or, or, you know, think about the QEGs too seriously. Right. And I, I always compare the client to the client. You know, if right. it is exactly. an athlete, I compare them to themselves. You know, if I were working with, you know, Michael Jordan, or Michael Phelps or an Alex Hono, I compare them to themselves because, you know, there's no two people whose brains are wired the same way. So it, to me, is not there is no purpose. It would defeat the purpose if I try to compare Michael Jordan's brain to anybody else's because it's his brain. That's how it's wired. I'm a musician. Pete is actually a musician, and, and I hang out with musicians. My uh, guitar teacher donated his brain to us in the way of a QEEG pattern, okay? You know, so the normative database for the Qs, like Thatcher got a group of people considered, quote, normal according to DSM, I guess, but uh, he's got his normal brains. And so when you do cap training, you train people toward that nor normative database. Okay. Dave, my teacher, he donated his, his brain in, in the, in the form of, you know, uh, the data and uh, Lori counts is another guitar player um, who is a genius guitarist. So what I was wondering and what you think about this, what if we got a normative database of superior musicians and we had students who want to become better musicians. Do you think it's feasible to train people toward our guitar genius database? What do you think about that? I think it, it's rather interesting. It would be quite useful. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, it, it is Jay who told me that the Australians are actually developing a database for athletes. So we're going to have an EEG database. People for are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think musicians is no exception. It's not going to be the same, but it gives you a point of reference to aim for. And I, 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 I actually think it would be quite useful. You know, if we have a database for musicians and one for athletes and within sports, one for specific sports. Um, you know, just like the Koreans, they're now differentiating men from women. Um, and that's exactly what we need to do. And uh, it's fascinating work. And, you know, our field is only scratching the surface and, you know, the possibilities are endless. Uh, I don't see why not, you know, same for students, same for CEOs, same for neuropsychologists, uh, you know, we, we have, we're different, but we're similar in many ways. And if you have a brainwave pattern in musicians that you want to get to, well, you can train that person to get as close you can to it, but at the same time, you're enhancing their own talents and their own skills and harnessing into that, into that ability. Okay, thank you for giving me permission to do that because that, that's my <laughs> I had a question before the question that I posted. Uh, it was around visualization. You mentioned it with the athletes and, and you know, I think we understand what that, what that entails. And there's all kinds of great research out there about the effectiveness of visualization standing next to, not literally, uh, the physical performance, meaning folks can do visualization on some kind of skill and develop proficiency at it at the same rate or better than the physical practice of it. There's a study on folks doing uh, free shots in basketball, free throws. And, and so with just that in mind, this visualization idea in, in my clinical work, we work or discuss or practice visualization with folks that aren't, you know, premier athletes. They're just trying to have a a better life. And so we're like, all right, well, what does that look like? And then you, you know, you kind of flesh it out so that we can add then an emotional component to it and they can practice, you know, visualizing what this life would be like. The idea being that they're developing the neural substrates or the neural connections to having that reality and then the reactions to it. And the idea being that that affects 
the development of that happening. Anyway, all that said, what's it look like on a queue when you're looking at, you know, and I've thrown a wide net here at you, Santiago, but what's that look like when you're seeing visualization? Like, how do you know if someone's good at it? How do you know if they're not? How do you train up to it? Well, it's a good question. And the, the first thing that is important to understand is that not, a, not our, all athletes have the ability to visualize or see the images in their head. Now, in my experience, in my anecdotal experience, what I've noticed is that when there's an eye closure and there's an increase of the alpha response, those athletes who make, you know, higher amplitude alpha brain waves, normally about nine, nine and a half hertz, tend to be better at producing the images, or at least that's what they report. You know, they report more clear, crisp images, and they can actually hear the sounds. And sometimes they report feeling the smell, you know, smell of the pitch, smell of the grass, smell of the, you know, sweat of the opponents. Uh, and that's been my experience. I know that I think it is Paul Swingle who has also mentioned that. And, uh, you know, Paul Swingle created an assessment called uh, Clinical Q. Now I think they call it the Quick Q or the Clinical Q. I don't remember what exactly they call it today. And one of the points that he assesses is uh, O2. And he talks about when, he, when a client closes their eyes and alpha increases in the back of the head 300% or more, usually that's a marker for talent. So it's, it's, it's a marker for big performance. I don't know if he's, he's, he's published it or it's more of his anecdotal findings, but I find that interesting. And it coincides with what I've observed. You know, I, I see a client whose peak performance, they close their eyes and they, the alpha goes really high and it's very nice, you know, sinusoidal. Um, when we do some visualization and mental imagery exercises, they report that they can do better. Now, do I train that with our athletes? I don't. You know, because just just like uh, like mindfulness or meditation is not for everybody. So I, I, what I try to find is I try to correlate what the brainwave pattern of that athlete facilitates in other skills. So, you know, the alpha in the back for visualizing, I teach mental imagery to that athlete. If they don't, then I don't work on it because I know they're not going to – it's going to be a waste of time. It's going to be a frustration, a frustrating experience for the athlete a lot of sports psychologists tend to do a one-size-fits-all approach and you know in my early years I would make the same mistake I would work with a team basketball team and I would have them laid down and I developed this script for mental imagery and I would ask them you know and half would say that was great the other half would say that's just a waste of time because I couldn't see anything and when I came across neurofeedback and the EEG it helped me understand how different we are and how using the neuroscience can help us understand the, the, the skills and the talents that are uh, specific to each person. So even I may be working with a team, I'm not gonna work with the team together every time. I'm gonna take the athletes with a specific skill and I'm gonna train that brainwave pattern to optimize it. I'm gonna take the athletes with a different brainwave pattern that helps them with a different skill and then I've got to train. And then I put those groups together and we have a team that's going to perform better. Uh, you know, that's sort of the approach that I use because I think that training the same protocol with all the athletes, it just doesn't work. You know, and if you look at their EEGs, it's not going to work because every athlete is different. Every person is different. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense, right? We don't treat everybody that walks in that says you know, ADHD the same by right. ever, ever, right? Thank yeah, you. it's as if we take every ADD client and we put a sensor here at CZ and we do the theta-beta ratio or the theta-SMR ratio. And we might be wasting our time because their ADD might be frontal slowing or it might be, you know, a lot of frontal beta, uh, you know, fast activity and they're more anxious or, you know, it's something coming from the posterior cortex. So, you know, that's why we assess because even though they have the label, even though they've been diagnosed as such, the brains are are going to tell a different story. Doc Santiago, we're, we're getting towards the end of the show, but I want to throw out one more question. It's election season here in the States for school board. We just had ours the other day. And when the candidates go up and they speak why they should vote for them, you don't hear anybody talking about special needs kids and the budgets that are going to have to increase. Uh, Seaburn Fisher was on the show a few, few episodes back and said that 
schools are going to be underfunded by 80% in dealing with special ed kids. I was just wondering if you, the docs or Santiago had any thoughts about what they what they're going to see when the kids start returning back to school. I don't know what it's like in Singapore or or South America. What what should the uh, the school board be prepared for uh, to get a heads up uh, once kids come back to school, uh, mental health wise? That's a really good question. I believe that not only for kids at school, but in for 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 human beings in general. We're, we're going to see the consequences of what happened in, in the next years. I think that what we're seeing now, it's only the beginning and we haven't seen it all. And, and I think uh, as far as mental health goes, we're going to see an increase in anxiety and depression. And physically, we're going to, we're going to see the consequences of this. You know, Zoom fatigue, uh, doing everything virtually, not being able to read and write the way we learned is gonna is gonna create a lot of issues. I would not be surprised if I see kids with very tired brains. And when I say very tired brains, I'm gonna see um, I mean they're gonna be dominated by very slow alpha. They're gonna be dominated by theta frequencies. They're gonna be dominated by delta frequencies. For a lot of them I think they're beta, they're SMR, you know, even the gamma uh, that helps that nesting and the coupling and the processing of information is just going to be gone. You know, we've, we've all been exposed to, to the light and technology for far too long. I believe that we're going to be dealing with kids who are going to have problems socializing personally because the socializing, it's been happening on a computer, on a laptop, on a cell phone. You know, just like you see the kids today because pornography is so accessible through through the internet or your cell phone, teenagers today and young adults, when they are about to have their first sexual relationship, they're having problems because they've been, they've been, they have access to porn. That's how they learn about sex. So when it comes, you know, when it's time to be the opposite sex, especially for males, there's a lot of issues, you know, premature ejaculation and problems achieving an erection. If we transport it to, to social interactions, I think kids are going to have hard times interacting in person without a mask um, and trusting that, that others are going to, that are not, are not out there to harm me or infect me with some kind of virus is going to be crucial. Uh, I definitely see depression. I definitely see trauma-related behaviors or trauma-related uh, conditions, you know, Association. We're going to see hypervigilance. We're going to see a lot of mistrust in others, um, and I think it's going to be based on the fact that people are going to have very tired brains, and schools need to be prepared for that. And and, and again, in general, in, in Singapore particularly, um, everything is working quite well. I mean, the, the pandemic is very well controlled here. Cases are at zero, so schools are all, are functioning normally. Kids are going there. Universities are open, but there's a there's a lot of pressure to perform. And what I'm noticing is that there are you know teenagers and young adults who report feeling desperate because they don't know what to do with the rest of their lives. So there's a huge expectation from adults um, in, in people who are 19, 20, 21 years of age to have their lives figured out. And I tell them, you know, you're only 21. I'm 44 and I don't know what to do with my life. You know, at 21, you don't have to worry about this. But, you know, there's a lot of pressure because you need to go to good school. You need to get good grades. You need to find a good job. And then you need to get a good salary and just, you know, be in the rat race for the, for the rest of your life. If we combine that with being under lockdown for some time, I think we have the uh, the perfect ingredients for you know, and it's going to be disastrous unless we really do something about it. And going back to the question, you know, this is when the tools we have can be very useful. You know, I, I had an insight yesterday from a 14-year-old girl yesterday about the Zoom school, something I didn't think about. I mean, certainly all the fatigue that you mentioned, Santiago, and the socializ socialization, and you gave a male perspective. Uh, from the female perspective, she said being on Zoom, even with her friends, not, you know, not even in school necessarily, being on Zoom, even with her friends makes her anxious. And I said, why? Tell me about that. And she said, because <clears throat> when she's doing Zoom, she's not looking at her friends, she's looking at herself. Uh. So it's like, yeah, right. 
So she's looking at herself and she's picking out all her flaws and she's, you know, uh, look, basically you're trying to have a conversation with somebody else while you're looking in the mirror, you know, and then and you're at the stage where, yeah, it's all, you know, uh, your identity and, and, you know, you're uh, trying to understand your role in life and who are you and, and comparing yourself to, you know, the rest of the, your peers and this stuff. And, and she said she spends the entire time, even in school, just staring at herself. And that just brings up all sorts of anxiety and, and um, you know, just think about the development of yourself. If, if you're referencing yourself rather than kind of, you know, being able to learn from other people and other social cues and things like that. So uh, I thought that was a very interesting uh, contribution to, to my understanding of, you know, what's happening to these kids when they're uh, trying to learn through uh, a computer screen. We've been doing our, our neuropsych assessments via Zoom since last May, right? So coming up on a year, geez. And in all that time, no kidding, other than folks just being used to it and it's the way it is, the the only folks that said they enjoyed it or preferred it with were folks with social anxiety. And so it almost feeds, supports, not trying to get too pejorative about it, but you're you're following me that, it works for them because it allows them to kind of maintain that distance and everybody else is just going along with it because it's the way it is. Right. So there's another perpetuation maybe of things that aren't okay or, or helpful How about that. We're going to need more counselors in the schools, the testing. That's what all the psych, that's what all the psych literature is telling me, you know, the, the APA monitor every month is like, Hey, how do we stay ahead of this thing? And that's, that's the theme. There's answers, but not, not super clear ones. It's like, Hey, we got some, we got a tsunami coming. Yeah. So, so from the budgetary standpoint, point, the, the ratio for the time being, it's, you're going to need more counselors per student. Is that what you guys think? Open your wallets. Well, you know, you, you have people that are fiscally, you know, conservative, responsible, and they hear that. And, you know, we're, we're trying to set them up, you know, Hey, prepare. I just haven't heard anybody talk about it. Then all of a sudden we're going to need it and there's no money. So unless the, the federal government steps in, you know, we might be hard pressed. That's all. It's just something I haven't heard anybody talk about. Well, yeah. And then, so, you know, talk about the consequences, you know, we talk about move rhythm and being disconnected and dissociated, you know, I'm not trying to predict negative things, but on the, you know, hopefully everything works out fine and people adapt and they, they, you know, step up, you know, cause that's who we are as people is, is we, we find a way and we, we go positive on the negative side of things. If, you know, the people who cannot do that, cannot adapt, you know, you're going to have a population of kids, teenagers, you know, young adults who are disconnected, right. If they have no connection to the environment and they're living in a virtual right. world, yeah, we're living in a uh, computer game. Um, you know, you know, what does that mean? They're, they're, they going to be uh, immune and disconnected from people. And, and, you know, hopefully, you know, I don't know how many bad things can happen from that, but it sounds like there's, there's a good potential. I like, I like your, uh, I like your enthusiasm though, Pete, because preventative measures have always been hard to fund politically. Right? <laughs> it's like, Hey, let's get together and pay for this thing. That's going to show up five years from now. And whoever you're talking to is going to be out of office, but I, you're, it, it's real. It's real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Santiago, what's the best way for our listeners to find out more about you? Heck, how can we find more about you besides Jay Gunkelman? Well, you, you can follow my Instagram, which is NeuroSantiago. Um, and then my YouTube channel, Santiago Grand, just like you see on the screen. That's the, the best ways to find more about my work and try to be uh, somewhat active on Instagram and, and post videos on YouTube whenever I have a chance. So if you go to my YouTube video, there's videos in Spanish and in English about my work, workshops, interviews, uh, some, some of what I do. Oh, Santiago, we're going to bring you back. Yeah, this, is, this is a good show. Could you, could you recommend somebody else to bring on the show? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm going to say Linda Walker. If you already didn't have her, uh, hands down, she's one of the greatest in the field very close friend of mine, my business partner at SciTech Bioscience, and she's uh, very knowledgeable as well. You know, she worked with Jay on uh, Maggie for the documentary, uh, and she's done a ton of work with Trouble Youth, so I think that she's she's a really good fit for the show. Well, that's outstanding. We're going to reach out. We're going to reach out. Thank you, Santiago. Quite welcome. Santiago, great show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I had a ton of fun. 
Uh, and, you know, thanks to Jay for suggesting me. I got to be honest, you know, when I read that, you know, I was reading through Facebook and I said, Jay recommends Santiago Brian. I couldn't believe it. I was just really ecstatic. And I couldn't sleep that night because I don't know why he did it, but uh, he likes me for some reason. So I, I had a good time. Thank you, guys. And I, I All hope right. we can do it soon. Thank you, Santiago. And it's past 10 o'clock now. You'll have no problems going to sleep after the show. <laughs> hope so. <laughs> All right. Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskipperin.com. That's drskiphrin.com. If you have an idea for a topic or a guest, please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out on neurofeedback. The more that listen, the more that we can help. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Cue the non-copyrighted music. <laughs>